Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Balagan. The last couple of years has been tense between the United States and the giant from the East, the People's Republic of China. Embargoes, changes in trade acts and tariffs, and economic arm wrestling made an impact on Israel as well. The growing investment of Chinese corporates in Israel, such as the light train in Tel Aviv, a new harbor in Ashdod, operating the new harbor in Haifa, and other main infrastructure and development projects, along with the growing Chinese interest in Israeli technologies, caused and may cause future clashes with our strong alliance with the United States. My guest today will elaborate on what happened between the U.S. and China. What is expected to happen now under the Biden administration, and what role will Israel have in it? Allow me to introduce Dr. Ehud Udiran, a senior lecturer and a U.S. associate professor of international relations in the University of Haifa in Israel, and an active board member at Mitvim, a leading Israeli think tank. Dr. Iran is also the author of two books and numerous academic articles. Thank you, Udi, for joining us. I'm really happy to have you here. And I wanted to ask you, like I ask most of my guests, what do we start with? Kobe, thank you for inviting me for your excellent uh, blog. Yeah, so I think you raised perhaps alongside um, climate change, this is probably the single most important question in international relations. How is the international arena going to shape with the rise of China if we have to break it into a number of major questions? First of all, What exactly is the trajectory of China? We've seen since, since 2012 a much more assertive Beijing, both internally and externally. Xi Jinping is the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. And um, we've seen creation of new global Chinese institutions, greater uh, Chinese involvement in the United Nations, and so on. However, China also has substantial problems because of the one-child policy. Its demography is problematic. And also for many years, there was the thinking in the West, and maybe it's still relevant, is that the 400 million people that the Chinese had raised from poverty into middle class at some point would like to protect their new acquired wealth to a more liberal political system. In fact, the most pessimistic people I talk to about the rise of China are at least two of my friends who live in China, who highlight the difficulties of this quick rise and dramatic social change. So that's one element. The second element is how will the current institutional framework of the international system look like? We now operate in a system that was shaped after the Second World War. It's largely American, Western, 
indeed we conduct this interview in English, and even if you were talking to me from Brazil, we'd probably talking English. That's a result of almost 200 years of Anglo-American dominance. And for the first time in a few hundred years, we have a great power that is not European. And the biggest question is, will it join the current system easily? Will it offer an alternative system? Will it change the values of the system? For example, since the Second World War, democracy is considered you know, the most prevailing political system. Even autocracies go through the process of elections and so on. But now we have a power that doesn't have this. So will democracy even survive as this popular form of governance? And then the third element is the American-Chinese interaction. In the famous book by Graham Ellison, he looked back at 200 years of rising powers and how they challenge the global order. And he had a quite a pessimistic conclusion in which in about 75% of the cases, the rise of a new power leads to a global war. So that is also a huge question, how exactly this tension will play out. It's somewhat complicated this time compared to the Cold War because the two countries are intertwined economically. Uh, they're both each other's biggest or second biggest trade partner. I think Mexico is slightly bigger as a trade partner. But this by itself is no guarantee for peace. We know England and Germany were close trading allies before the First World War, which didn't prevent them to going for a war. So that would be in the global arena. And then there's the Israeli perspective. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go on or you want to ask something more specific about that. I'm really enjoying to hear you, so uh, go on. <laughs> yeah, so, so then it goes to the question of how does Israel deal with that? And if I use the same framework I proposed, there are a few ways to think about it. First of all, Zionism and Israel evolved into this new global American-led order. The country was created after the Second World War within the context of the United Nations, an institution that was led by the West, is not coincidentally headquartered in New York. And Zionism from its beginning had this tendency to rely on a great power ally. Most, for most of these, it was a Western ally, UK, France, and then the United States. Although historically, the Zionists reached out to the Ottoman Empire. So that's a non-Western power at the early days of Zionism. So how do we conduct ourselves with this great power uh, situation in mind? And here, I think it's obviously not balanced. First of all, Israel is a very close ally of the United States currently. And so the more we'll have tensions between Beijing and Washington, Israel will be forced to side more clearly with the United States. But also, Israel is the state of the Jewish people. And so about half the Jewish people, or maybe 40%, you probably see yeah. on the numbers better than I, reside in the United States. So even if the U.S. deteriorates to a third-tier great power, it's still always going to be of huge interest to Israel because it's the biggest concentration of Jews outside of Israel. And you're talking to right. me from what is still the biggest Jewish city in the world, New York City. The second way I think about it is at the end of the day, we are at the periphery of this conflict. If you think about it in physical terms, the space in which the U.S. and China will collide is the Pacific Ocean, is Asia, the United States' ability to develop alliances in Asia. And a bit like the Second World War and the Cold War, the Middle East is a peripheral arena there. And so we'll fall into this greater question of how this American-Chinese competition, rivalry, or God forbid even war in a few decades, will play itself in its peripheral components of the international system. One answer to that would be how important oil is. It's currently very important for the Chinese losing its importance uh, to the United States. 
The second way to think about it, Israel is on the margins of the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. This is the reenactment, if you will, of the Silk Road. So that would be a trade path that goes both at sea and on land. Israel is not exactly on that path, but it is a secondary path of it. So how important that would be for the Chinese. And finally, I think it will affect culture, politics. Israel itself is struggling with some questions about its own democracy. We spoke earlier before the program about what will happen if Israel does not relinquish the West Bank and will have major challenges for its democracy. A world in which China is dominant and its political system is dominant may be easier for Israel to hold on to the West Bank without giving rights to the Palestinians. You know, if I had to try and lay out a way to think about it, that would be my initial roadmap. Well, when we are looking at uh, what happened in the last 100 years, or actually the last, uh, let's say, 30 to 40 years, mm-hmm. the U.S. has played a big role of the world police officer, while China was actually investing in economic growth in places like Africa, Asia, you know, and developing infrastructure. How will that impact, and how does that impact today, actually, on the power in the world? Because... It started with the Obama administration, but it accelerates under the Trump administration that actually the United States took a step back from its role as the world's uh, cup. And on the other hand, the Chinese are not trying to bring any army power into the field, but they are using the economic uh, leverage on states. What impact will that do on international relations in the world and the alliances and What's the impact that you think that it will have on Israel, for example? So you're absolutely right to say that outgoing President Trump took a dramatic turn away from the way the United States conducted itself in the world since the Second World War, whereas all presidents, Republican and Democrat, highlighted the significance of an engaged United States, a leader of the free world, and essentially since the early 1990s, the most dominant player in the international system, President Trump took a step back. There are two ways to think about it. One is it's a leadership thing, and now we are back with uh, President Biden, who was shaped, we see already from his foreign policy team, people who were shaped in this traditional American mold, and Trump is gone, and now we'll go back to a more engaged United States. And indeed, this is what Biden had promised during the elections. But the second look would say this is structural. This is not necessarily people who are at the helm. China is growing economically, that's a fact. It's very close to the U.S. in some parameters. According to some measurements like supercomputers, it's already equal to the U.S. It has a few plans to try and lead the world in crucial areas like AI. I hear from my friends in genetics that they're in some aspects ahead of the United States, partly because they have somewhat different ethical approach, we'll put it that way. So the question is, how will these two powers arrange the relationship between them? Part of it is leadership, and Biden, I think, will try to revive the alliance system. But when we say power in the system, we have to be more specific. What are we looking at? So one thing we're looking at is the international organizations, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, UNESCO, the World Bank. And here we saw an interesting Chinese approach getting much more involved in the current system. For example, China, I think, is the second biggest supplier of peacekeeping forces, and Chinese were elected to lead some of the uh, UN agencies. Some of the most important UN agencies are now led by uh, Chinese. But in the last two years, they also started developing their own global institutions, like a competitor to the World Bank and to the International Monetary Fund. 
So that would be the issue of institutions. The second is deployment of power. You're absolutely right to say that we're mostly seeing economic activity. But if you take a long view of history, many world powers began as economic powers, including the United States, which was the leading economic power from the early 20th century. But it was only translated to military power in the middle of the 20th century. The same thing happened with the United Kingdom. Companies like East India Company, they were first, and only later that would follow with military power. So I'm not sure this division of economics, you know, China only economy and the US only military will remain. Once you become a global economic actor, and there's, you know, investments in Africa, and there's over a million Chinese, for example, working now in Africa, you start developing the military capabilities to defend these economic interests. For example, when the fighting in Libya began, the Chinese deployed the Chinese Navy to allow Chinese citizens to leave. That's only one small harmless example, but it shows that clearly people in Beijing are thinking, how are we going to help our investments abroad? I hope that the two leaderships, as we go forward in the coming decades, will manage these changes in power in a way that will not end with a global war. If I'm going back, I mean, when we're looking at China as economic uh, giant, they still have a lot of internal uh, challenges ahead of them. First thing, they need to feed almost 1.3 billion people. Second thing is that they need to make sure that those people continue to get jobs and continue to work so they will reduce poverty. And it's a huge state, so they also invent a lot in infrastructure. And at one point, I do believe that their economic growth will um, slow down Because people are looking now for cheaper markets. The Chinese market is becoming more expensive to produce. So people are moving to Africa and other states in Asia, and it's already happening. What do you think that China is going to do in the future in order to keep its engine going? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right in describing the current state of economy and the challenges and some solutions we already are seeing. So one is going out. There's excess capacity in the ability to develop infrastructure. So you go out and you continue developing infrastructure abroad. The second thing, which to some extent the Chinese Communist Party is doing, is highlighting nationalism. You have internal tensions. If your communism does lead, it's called communism, but in fact, it's a capitalist system with inequalities. Yeah. You can highlight the contribution of the party to reviving China and so on. And the third solution is to develop a middle class that will have enough buying power to move the economy and having the economy moving up the value chain. So yes, maybe production is going to other places, but as we know in, I don't know, like high tech, you know, even now a lot of the production of American Apple products is done in China, but the U.S. is higher on the value chain in selling it and planning it. And so the Chinese effort is to move up the value chain, but the party absolutely, or the Chinese leadership absolutely is facing all these challenges with a leader that is very centralized. We don't see a lot of opposition to him, but it's, I think, inevitable. If some, one person is concentrating so much power in his hands, someone is bound to protest against it at some point. We can discuss it further in a different episode, you know, talking about world leaders, because we can actually see that even in democracies, some states, unlike the U.S., are still keeping, you know, the same leaders. If you look at Turkey that have pre-elections, even uh, our own uh, state of Israel that yeah. still has the same prime minister for almost 12 years in a row. And in overall, he's been in power for more than 15 years. 
and Putin, of course, that has been in power since, uh, I think it was the late 90s, if I recall. He was the president, then prime minister, and now president again. And we can discuss that about, you know, what's happening in democracies these days. You know, when we're talking about outsourcing and looking for uh, infrastructure uh, investments abroad, then I'm going to take us back to Israel. Because the Chinese are, unlike the U.S. that just investing in companies, for example, the Chinese are actually stepping foot physically in Israel. They have Chinese workers coming to dig the tunnels of the light train. They have Chinese workers building the harbor. And they will have managers and Chinese people operating the new harbor in Haifa. So they actually are, in a way, getting strongholds in one way. While on the other way, when we're talking about technologies, I mean, Israel had a couple of clashes with the U.S. administrations in the past over arm deals and uh, weapons use. But if we go back to check when did the American administration step in when it came to arm deals that Israel made, I think that one of the biggest cases it was 1999, if I remember correctly, that Israel signed the Falcon um, surveillance system deal with uh, China. It was like $300 million, I think, when Ehud Barak was the prime minister of Israel. Mm -hmm. And then um, the U.S. administration made us cancel it. Do you see that continue to happen or that things may shift between Israel, China and the U.S. in that term? So Israel occupies a unique place in the sense that we're seeing both Chinese behavior that is prominent in the uh, developing world, as you say, direct investments and in, uh, leading uh, infrastructure projects, the two ports, the underground tunnel in Haifa that was concluded already, All right. one of the desalination projects, etc. Then we're seeing behavior that is evident uh, to Chinese behavior in other places, uh, more advanced places, like buying companies. Nuva, of course, is a prime example. And also Damana, it's a chemical All right. company. And the third thing we're seeing, Chinese behavior that really occurs only in very advanced economies, and that's venture capital money into high tech. I think the peak of that was in 2018. And even then, the peak, according to the data I saw, was about 12% of VC funding in 2018, numbers went a bit down, partly because Chinese are restricting a foreign currency of going outside. So we have these three types of investments. Because the current administration took a more assertive line, we saw more direct U.S. pressure on these issues. There was some American pressure to create a mechanism to verify or supervise or limit Chinese investments in technology, similar to CFIUS. CFIUS is an American government entity that blocks, in effect, some investments in high-tech. So under American pressure, Israel created a similar mechanism. For now, it seems it's not doing too much, but it remains to be seen how much the Biden administration will look into this. And we saw an American, for the first time in May of this year, we saw pressure on Israel to make it difficult for Chinese to invest in infrastructure. A few days before a tender for a second desalination project, called SOREC2, in which a Chinese company looked like a potential winner. The Secretary of State Pompeo uh, came to Israel. It was not publicized exactly what occurred, but it seemed that this was discussed. And in the next few days, the Chinese company lost the tent. We saw some pressure, but like many other things in the Trump administration, you know, we didn't see a complete comprehensive strategy. 
the U.S. itself, I think, is in a dilemma. How exactly do you compete with a country that is also your partner in business? So it really remains to be seen. I think on the Israeli side, we still don't have a clear sense of what exactly is the threat. It's a unique situation that you have external investments that potentially have a security threat. Until not that long ago, Israel was not a site in which great international corporations invested. We see something that we see also in Europe, some tension between Israel's security establishment, which is very close to the U.S., and much more careful with dealing with the Chinese, and the economic, trade, shipping industry that's much more open to Chinese investments. As both of us know, the security establishment in Israel is more dominant. Uh, so, you know, if this push comes to shove, I have no doubt who will win. And Israelis still have the memory of the two aggressive American responses to the arms deals. We know now that Israel began selling arms to China in the 70s, and uh, the Falcon crisis was indeed the most dramatic one. The final Israel retreated in a very dramatic event. I partly know it because I was a junior official in the Barack administration. We held our line against American pressure not to cancel the deal. It was actually the deal was a retrofit a Soviet plane, which Israel displayed in the Ben-Gurion airport. So whoever drove next to the airport could see this plane. And the night Barack went to Camp David to the peace conference with Arafat and really needed American support, that night he decided to withdraw. And I even drafted the first draft of the letter. Barack was flying. I stayed in Israel. We faxed the letter to the plane. He took out most of what I wrote because I began writing this intellectual long thing about we are a small country, you have to understand us. He wrote something much more practical. And at 6 a.m., the director general of the Ministry of Defense came, took the letter, and flew to Beijing. And then we had the second event in 2005. Barack was no longer in power, around retrofitting some UAVs called Harpy System. And after that, Israel stopped all military sales. Also, by then, China is much more advanced and perhaps no longer needs our technology. So this, I think, is pretty much the layout. Also, I think Israelis will have to develop a greater sense of what exactly is threatened here by Chinese investments. Because we haven't seen until now some hostile or serious leaning of China on Israel. In two fascinating open letters, the Chinese ambassador, the former Chinese ambassador, he died unexpectedly in Israel. He wrote to the Israeli public saying, you should not be suspicious of us. In fact, you are a very small actor in our investment portfolio. So for Israelis, the Chinese investments are huge, but seen from Beijing, we are insignificant economically, even in the Middle East, where Iran is their greatest trade partner. Iran and also a lot of uh, countries in Africa. I mean, they have going yeah. investments in Africa. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it will look like uh, with the Biden administration? I mean, China has a big leverage on the United States on one hand, with holding, I think, $1.5 trillion in bonds, in American bonds. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, the United States is the largest trade partner of the Chinese market. So how do you see the balance between uh, the new administration and China? What will happen? Will they try to arm wrestle each other again, like uh, the Trump administration was doing? Or it's going to be more collaborative relations? So first one has to see what will be the response in Beijing. And here, you know, I can't say too much. I have some general sense and had a chance to be a few times in Beijing including on issues relating to the Middle East, but I'm not sure I have a strong reading of the Chinese response. The general approach was what they call peaceful rise to power. In other words, let's accumulate power, but once we meet resistance, to be very careful. 
So one element in this puzzle is no matter what an administration do in the U.S. is how will Beijing respond. From the early signs of what we see in the Biden administration, there are a few elements to consider. One is there is bipartisan support on Congress to deal with the Chinese challenge. Although Biden and his team belong to an administration that was more collaborative, they now realize that's a significant challenge. But I think it will take a while until policy is formulated. The U.S. did operate during the Cold War under the doctrine of containment, which was shaped only in the early 50s. So it took a few years until the U.S. understood exactly what's the nature of the Soviet challenge until this was translated to policy. Here it's much more challenging because they are collaborating. So one element, I think we will see ongoing U.S. engagement competitively with China. The way it will be approached, I think, because Biden committed to a traditional American leadership policy, it will be a return to the alliance system. So that means strengthening relations with Europe to deal with Chinese challenge. China is making huge efforts in Europe. It may mean a closer alliance in Asia. The Trump's approach made the Japanese, the Koreans, the traditional allies of the U.S. very edgy. So Biden will have to revive that because even if he changes policy, now these countries realize that there is a potential for an American administration to essentially abandon them. And of course, a major player here would be India, which is the main country that could balance against China in Asia. So I think we'll see a greater effort for alliances, especially in Asia. And the third issue will be international institutions. The U.S. under Trump you know, turned its back on some of these institutions. It was very critical of the World Health Organization, left it, left the Paris Accords. Biden, separate from China, already committed to getting more engaged in these yes. multilateral efforts. And we'll see there also an effort, I think, to compete with China. And if I go back, you mentioned that Iran is a big um, ally mm-hmm. of China. And Iran is also strong power in the Persian Gulf area, which is not just a threat to the state of Israel, if we try to take it in a broader perspective. It's also a threat to all of the Sunnite states in the Gulf area, Saudi Arabia, the AUE, and all of the, you know, Sunni states. At the moment, the Chinese are supporting the Iranian efforts to gain their nuclear powers or anything, or do you think that they will make any active steps to support the Iranians gain any uh, nuclear advantage? Yeah, I'm not sure how advanced Chinese technology is to support that, but China is pretty much reliant on oil from the region, particularly from Iran, and also entered into this vacuum created by American sanctions. So, you know, there's heavy sanctions on Iranian oil, and it seems that China is willing to buy that. You raise a fascinating question, and that would be what would be the Chinese approach to alliances? You know, the U.S. has a clear model in which you cooperate with actors around the world to advance your goals. China doesn't have a history of that. In fact, if you think of the way Chinese think about the international system, the traditional approach to look at it is hierarchical. In other words, China understood the world as it standing at the center and other countries giving tribute to it. That was the hundreds of years traditional approach. They don't have a long tradition of multilateral cooperation in the American style. And and these number of events, I had the chance to be in Beijing, talking even about the region, the way they said it is, While the West, going back to colonialism, interacts in a much more assertive way, they occupied Africa and parts of Asia, and now they put you into alliance, they tell you how to behave, 
you know, the U.S. has sometimes a human rights agenda and those some administrations. We only trade. We don't intervene in internal affairs, none of our business. We just do our thing and we go away. So we'll have to see how the Chinese approach to alliances evolves. For now, they're able to talk to everyone in the region, to us, to the Iranians. It's not a Soviet-U.S. competition type that each side has its own proxies and they cooperate with them. Having said that, you could see signs that China is trying to have soft power and influence elites in some of the countries they're engaging with. You know, they're inviting people to Beijing. There's a set of Confucius institutions in which people are coming to learn Chinese. It's obviously not as sophisticated and advanced as 200 years of European and then American experience in approaching the other countries of power. And of course, it's much easier for the U.S. to have soft power because of its set of value, openness, country of immigrants, and so on. But China did indicate it may be doing something like that. So I guess the key to the answer to your question is, how would China approach the issue of alliances? Uh, For now, we haven't seen too much of an aggressive engagement, but that may change uh, the more competition uh, gets tense. If I want to conclude, and you were mentioning the, the new administration and what do you think that will happen, what will be the effect on Israel? I mean, you said that Chinese actually don't need too much of Israel's technology, but they do put some effort in investing in Israeli high-tech as well. Do you see any future challenge for the Israeli administration, you know, getting into a clash with one of the empires, either the Biden administration or the Chinese uh, administration? I think the more there'll be a competitive approach between competitive, uh, you know, model between Beijing and Washington, there will be pressure on close American (laughs) allies, such as the United States, to limit the relationship with China. And we saw it with this Israeli CFUs, with the water desalination. So it will put Israel in somewhat inconvenient situation. But I think because of the Jewish community here, because of the close alliance with the U.S., because the U.S. is still a very powerful country, if push comes to shove, Israel will, of course, be on the American side. I think the ideal for Israel would be, even in a competitive situation, to retain a close strategic alliance with the U.S. and take full advantage of the economic developments with China. That's essentially what Israel is trying to do signal that it's willing to be part of the Chinese economic efforts, but keep the predominance of the strategic relations with the United States. But that's partly easy to do because the U.S. is still very strong. I think we'll have to revisit this question if the power balance changes dramatically. Yeah. So one last question before we conclude. I want to go a circle back to Iran. In the past week, the head of the nuclear development project of Iran was assassinated in uh, Tehran. And if anything will come to a point that the U.S. will lead a military action against Iran or Israel will do anything, do you think that the Chinese government will interfere? For now, on the military side, they're not strong enough to make any huge difference. Arenas in which they may be critical of it is, of course, the United Nations, you know, maybe offering some financial assistance, but they're in no position to significantly alter this. They will use, as they have used before, any American shortcomings to try and enter into this vacuum. Let's say a hypothetical Israeli-American military engagement in Iran. They will say, you see, the U.S. is militarily aggressive. We are not going to be militarily aggressive and so on. For now, they're sticking to what they call international legitimacy. 
So even on the Israel-Palestine issue, they just say the international consensus is two-state solution. That's what we support. So I think they'll try to stick to international norms. And so if there was any way to justify in terms of international law, any future Israeli-American armed engagement with Iran, it would be easier to handle it vis-a-vis China. But again, if this will be delayed far longer, over time, China will have a stronger military force. For now, they are not in a position, I think, to uh, challenge in any serious way such an engagement. And I will ask another question because you, sure. you brought it up. So I'm curious, but do you see the Chinese investing in improving, you know, efforts in improving their army to become also a military power <laughs> or they are investing we'll- more on the soft power? side. We're already seeing a massive Chinese buildup, including in areas of technology that are considered to be, you know, the next cutting edge of global competition, like artificial intelligence. We see growing defense budgets. It is a dramatic shift in the Chinese worldview about the armed forces. Their general approach was the country is so big and there's so many millions of Chinese people that you don't really have to build very aggressive armed forces. I think Mao Zedong even said at some point, even if I'm bond with a nuclear weapon, I lose half my population, I still have 500 million people. So the People's Liberation Army did never pride itself like the American military as having the cutting-edge technologies and so on. We are seeing a change in this arena, mostly in the regional context, you know, challenges like Taiwan. And the second big change is a buildup of a Chinese Navy. China, with the exception of uh, the famous tours of Zhenghai in the 15th century, it's a Chinese admiral that took seven trips to the world did not traditionally have a big navy. It's an inward-looking country, mostly terrestrial, focused on land, territories, the Great Rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow River. But we are seeing now a Chinese approach beginning in 2015 in which the seas starting to be important, partly because, as I mentioned earlier, the space between the U.S. and China is the sea. So they bought aircraft carrier from Ukraine, originally the Soviet one, and they're building now a second one. Again, they're competing in a smart way. They're not building a copy of the U.S. Navy, but they're building capabilities that will make it very difficult for the U.S. Navy to operate close to its shores, these artificial islands, the type of weaponry, which is called in the military jargon, anti-access area denial. So these are weapons that will be able from the Chinese shore to attack Chinese ships. Even this affects Israel. As you may remember, in 2006, a during the war with Hezbollah, Israeli Navy vessel was hit yes. from Lebanon and four sailors, four people that were in the ship, some of them were not sailors, were killed. The missile that hit it, C-802, is a Chinese missile. It's not a coincidence that the Chinese developed land-based capabilities to challenge navies because that's what they're doing vis-a-vis the Americans. So we're definitely seeing a buildup, not necessarily the traditional American buildup, but they're clearly developing their military muscles. Cool. Well, Udi, it was a pleasure to have you here. I mean, it's really, it's fascinating and I can continue to discuss with you, you know, for hours. Uh, but unfortunately, our time is short. So I really want to thank you for uh, joining me today and shedding light on what's happening between the Chinese government and the American administration and, you know, your forecast about what will the Biden administration do and what's Israel's uh, place between those two giants. I'm looking forward to record with you again, and I'm really grateful for having you, and I want to thank you and our audience for joining us today. Thank you, Kobe, for having me and uh, for this very interesting podcast. Thank you, Udi. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.